0: Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right, hey, Exodus chapter 8, dealing with the plagues of Israel. We're going to look at three of them this morning. Um, But really, you know, how do we apply that to our lives? Well, um, I really think chapter 8, and I entitled it A Lesson on Hardening Steel, and you'll understand as I as I go in, hopefully you'll understand we're going to have a little course on metallurgy here this morning and uh, in relation to our hearts. and so we'll be looking at this that this morning as we go through this this study. So I'm going to begin reading at verse one of Exodus chapter eight. It says, "And the Lord spoke to Moses. Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, into your kneading bowls, and the frogs shall come upon you, on your people and on all your servants. So this is as I mentioned when we started going through Exodus there's nine plagues not counting the death of the firstborn which really that that some people say it's a 10th plague and it's really it's kind of in a category all its own. But it, what's fascinating is that there's three sets of three plagues. And the first and the second plague in each of these three sets are preceded by a warning. The third one of each set, uh, there is no warning. It just, it just happens. Well, this frogs one that we're looking at here in chapter 8, verse 1, this is the second plague of the first set. So there was a warning. Uh, Moses spoke to Pharaoh and, and said, you know, let my people go. Otherwise, there's going to be frogs in your land. And uh, you go, well, why frogs? What's the significance behind that? Well, to understand that, you basically just to look at Egyptian history, frogs were embalmed, uh, some frogs, not all frogs, <laughs> and uh, they were honored with burial in, uh, in the tombs of uh, Thebes. Uh, there was a frequent inscriptions of frogs on monuments, and uh, uh, there's amulets that they've discovered in the shape of frogs. Uh, one of their deities that they worshipped was Heket, and he, he or she, I guess, was a frog-headed goddess. Uh, it would have been a she then. <laughs> was a frog-headed goddess. Uh, she was a fertility goddess. And uh, so the, the Nile River would flood every year. And uh, at the last stages of the flooding, of the Nile, the, the corn around, the, the soil around would have all those nutrients, and, and the corn would be germinated right next to the Nile River. And so they associated this with Heket, their, their deity. And so she became associated with, because of new life and growth, with the final stages of childbirth. So um, women often wore amulets of her, of Heket, during childbirth. And uh, again, Heket had a head of a frog. And, uh, and so this amulet, it would be sitting on a lotus, lotus leaf or lotus plant. Um, what's interesting, too, about this plague is during the Great Tribulation, Uh, Revelation 16, there's going to be, and I'll just read it to you, verse 13 and 14. John says this, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and, uh, and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. I don't know if you like frogs or not, but in in Revelation, there's these demon spirits that they resemble uh, frogs or they're like frogs. Well, verse five, it says, then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers and over the ponds and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So, Pharaoh, uh, excuse me, so Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt of Egypt, and you just picture this, frogs everywhere. I mean, and this particular kind of frog, by the way, they've discovered, it's it's, it's got a scientific name, Rena mosaica, and uh, it's raining frogs, I don't know if that's what it means, but. Um, <laughs> They're actually, <clears throat> a couple days ago I was driving back from Sam's Club, and I was taking that new circle drive that they have, kind of a north end of town, and this huge frog in the dark, this huge frog came jumping right across in my headlights. I'm like, wow, if I had a part of a frog jumping contest, that would have been probably a winner. I probably killed it, I don't know. But uh, it's not like those kind of jumping frogs. These frogs that they, they think were these ones, this Reina mosaica, they look a lot more like toads. They don't jump; they just crawl around and they croak incessantly. They've they've discovered these writings where they talk about those croaking frogs, uh, frogs, excuse me. And so, if you can imagine, frogs everywhere. You go step around inside your house, and in the morning, you know, you get up out of bed and squish, squish, squish. You know, you're just frogs coming between your toes, and it's like that's disgusting, right? Um, and it says that they're even going to be in your ovens and kneading bowls. And you, so you go in the morning. Now, their ovens, by the way, were not like our ovens. Like, you know, you got this heated stove. You open up the door. What they did was they dug a hole in the ground. They put some rocks and some wood in there. And that was their, their, was their oven, basically. They put a pot inside of this hole in the earth. And so you can imagine. The, the mother's getting up. She's, she's cleaning the frogs out from between her toes. And she's walking over to make breakfast. And she, she goes to put some stuff in the oven. And, and there's frogs. They're just full of frogs. And, and uh, you know, you go to bake something and there's slimy frogs everywhere. It's like it would be disgusting. But here's the deal. To make matters worse for them, because they worship frogs, and some of their deities were frogs or in the shape of frogs, they couldn't kill them. So if you accidentally killed one, you know, I mean, you couldn't help it if you're walking around. But, but basically, they, they worship frogs, so you couldn't kill these frogs. So here's these frogs everywhere. And uh, I have this story, it's not a story, it's an accounting from a guy by the name of Phunias. He was a disciple of Aristotle. So this isn't dealing with the Egyptian plague of frogs, but he describes a plague of frogs that occurred in a place called Paonia and Dardania. He says, in Paeonia and Dardania there appeared once suddenly such a number of frogs that they filled the houses and the streets. Therefore, as killing them or shutting the doors was of no avail, as even the vessels were full of them, the water infected and all food uneatable, as they could scarcely set their foot upon the ground without treading on heaps of them, as they were vexed by the smell of the great numbers which died, they fled from that region altogether. So it was so bad that the people in this in this area according to this Phineas guy that they they couldn't even stick around. They had to leave town. It was that bad. Well, we don't read about Pharaoh leaving town, so apparently they stuck it out. Interesting in Psalm 78, it deals with the with the account of Exodus that we're studying this morning. And it says there that he he sent swarms of flies, speaking about God, he sent swarms of flies among them which devoured them, which we'll look at in a little bit, and frogs which destroyed them. So, you know, you think it's not just an inconvenience, there's just a lot of frogs all over the place. This was devastating. It was not just a mere inconvenience. This was really a punishment from the Lord. Verse 7, And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs, on the land of Egypt, boy, it's like dumb and dumb and dumber, right? It's like what, what? Okay, so they're trying to, you know, you can't get rid of the frogs and frogs, and so what these magicians do, they bring more frogs. It's like, what are you guys thinking? But you know, the thing is, they couldn't get rid of the land, all they or get rid of them, all they could do was conjure up more of them. And uh, we looked at that last week, you know. Uh, the demonic world, the occult, you know, I mean, Satan can, can, can masquerade as an angel of light. He can do things that, you know, there's, there's things that happen that, that definitely have a, a uh, occultic, supernatural um, explanation behind it. But it's never good. It's never good. It's never for the benefit of mankind, for humans. It's always destructive. And of course, so then, you know, rather than getting rid of the frogs, which you would have thought that would be the thing to do, all they could do was conjure up more of them. Verse 8: Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. It's interesting if you recall back in Exodus 5. Verse 2, it's Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. And now here he's, obviously he's knowing the Lord in, in, in this sense anyways. And he says, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs for me and my people. It's like he's finally given in. That's probably what Moses thinks. Oh, he's, got a so- he's softened his heart and stuff. And so verse 9, so Moses said to Pharaoh, accept the honor of saying when I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. So he said tomorrow, and he said, let it be done according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God, and the frogs shall depart from you from your houses, from your servants, and from your people, they shall remain in the river only. So to understand what's going on here, you know, Aaron, yeah, I mean, the frogs were abundant in, in Egypt, especially during the flooding stage anyways, but what made this uh, amazing was that Aaron, you know, they he stretched out his rod and miraculously, I mean, it's just the land was swarming with frogs all over. And so too would the removal of the plague be as equal, uh, equally, you know, sudden and dramatic. And so what, in essence Moses is saying is you name the time and it'll happen that way so it's not like they're going to just disappear after a while you know eventually they'll go away or something he says you name this specific time and then we'll pray I'll pray and then that's when the frogs will go away and so what would you do if you were pharaoh (laughs) wwpd what would you do or what would pharaoh do well I know what I would do if I'm stepping on frogs and I'm opening up my breakfast, and there's frogs in my cereal box, and I'm, you know, everything, frogs everywhere, frogs between your toes, frogs between the sheets, you know. The moment he said, hey, when do you want to get rid of the frogs? I'd say, right now. <laughs> I mean, do it now. <laughs> and look what he says. He says, tomorrow, tomorrow. It's like, Pharaoh, you want to spend one more night with the frogs? That's bizarre. That's bizarre. Well, only I can think of is maybe maybe Pharaoh thought, "Hey, if they leave by themselves, if we just wait it out and they leave by themselves, I won't have to give credit to Moses and Aaron, and I won't have to let the children of Israel go." Maybe that's what he's thinking. We don't really know. But when in whatever event he procrastinated, he wanted to wait till tomorrow. You know, procrastination—that's an interesting thing. I don't know how many of you here are procrastinators. There, um, I see some hands are coming up here, some confessions. <laughs> um, you know, in the natural realm, procrastination sometimes is helpful. Now, I'll give you an example. I used to be a, a, a maintenance guy uh, for a large corporation that will remain unnamed. And, uh, you know, I'd, go, I'd be on call, you get a phone call at machines down and manufacturing's down and they're all in a panic and stuff. And, and i go out there and work on the machine, get it running, and then they'd be making more money. Everybody's happy again. And uh, sometimes there'd be, there'd be certain people that would call and they would call all the time. And you go out there and you know it's like it's just something ridiculous. So sometimes I would just wait. And not go right away, just wait a little bit, And by the time I get there, they go, "Oh, the problem's fixed itself, you know." So sometimes in the natural realm, procrastination can pay off. But more than often like, like, I would say more frequently, even in the natural realm, it has negative outcomes, right? It, it's, it's terrible. Spirit uh, procrastination. That's natural. Spiritual procrastination never has a positive. Outcome. It always has a negative outcome. Saying you're going to change tomorrow, I'll deal with this tomorrow. In the spiritual realm, it's never a good thing. James says this in um, chapter four, verse fourteen. He says, "Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that vanishes. Excuse me, a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away." A lot of people, they suffer consequences of their sins, you know, that things are really bad. They make, they make promises that they're going to change, they're going to do something different, they're going to obey, and then they, but they put it off. And then sometimes they forget, or things you know, get a little bit better, and then they don't deal with it. And uh, the Bible says spiritual procrastination is sin. It's literally sin. James 4.17, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him... It is sin. Spiritual procrastination is sin. Listen, look at verse 12. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. Dead frogs everywhere. Verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Again, spiritual procrastination. You know, there's a real danger in procrastination, in procrastinating in the spiritual sense. There's a real danger in, 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 in having the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and he wants us to to respond or to repent or to do something, and and, you know, our hearts start glowing red and burning with this conviction, and then we put it off. We wait till tomorrow or another time or something, and here's the first lesson in metallurgy. Our hearts are like steel, because if you take steel and you heat it up, you get it glowing hot and then you cool it down, you you rapidly cool it down, that's how you harden steel. But that's also how our hearts can harden. Our hearts can, you know, they can get glowing red hot with that conviction of the Holy Spirit and if we don't do what, what we're being prompted to do by the Spirit, if we put it off, we say, ah, oh, tomorrow I'll deal with it or maybe another time. I'm not quite ready to address that in my life. We cool down again and the problem is our hearts get just that much harder, a little bit harder every time. Psalm 95, verse 6 says this, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. Forty years I was grieved with that generation, said it is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. When the Lord lays something on your heart, deal with it right then and there. So spiritual procrastination is one of the ways that your and my hearts can become hardened. So now we get to the third plague in that first set of three. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's no warning for this one. Verse 16. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land, so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. So if you recall the first two plagues, right, the, 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 the blood and the, uh, the river of Nile turning to blood and then the frogs, they all dealt with the water, with the river. This plague deals with the soil of Egypt, the land. And for the Egyptians, the Egyptian god Geb, or the deity that they worship, Geb was over the dust of the earth. So these plagues, they're striking right at the heart of Egyptian idolatry. In fact what was especially bad about this plague not that any of them were good but they were all bad but what made it really tough for Egyptians in their worship of deities was the fact that their priests they 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 shaved their heads. In fact, they shaved all the hair off their bodies. They wore these single woven tunics, and they tried to remain ceremonially clean so that they could perform their ritualistic sacrifices and stuff. Well, now these priests that are supposedly ritualistically clean, they got lice all over them. They're infested with lice, so they, they can't perform the sacrifices. Not only are the priests unable to perform the sacrifices or the rituals, but it says that the lice came on man and beast. So any animals that they might try to sacrifice, they're infested as well. So nothing, they, it pretty much put a stop to their, to their worship practices, to their rituals that they did. Verse 18, now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice. It's like what? <laughs> but they could not. So there were lice, on man and beast again why 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 wouldn't they try to get rid of the lice well they couldn't and uh, obviously it's because it's beyond it's beyond the demonic realm to bring relief from suffering uh, it, they can only increase suffering in one form or another well <clears throat> these magicians and we know from James I think it was James that they're Janus and Jambres is their names maybe it's not James but in the New Testament we're told that they were unable, they were able to duplicate the first two plagues, but now they reach a limit and they can't do any more duplicating of the plagues. Satan's powerful, but he's not all-powerful. There's a limit to what Satan can do. There's a limit to what demons can do. Verse 19, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. Doesn't it strike you interesting that they said, this is the finger of God? It's like, wow, the magicians are recognizing the Lord. Well, it's not that they're giving glory to the God of Israel or they're not acknowledging Moses and Aaron that they were truly sent by him. They're basically covering their own behinds, basically. You know what they're basically saying is, hey, this God of Moses and Aaron, this God of the Israelites, uh, he's equal to, or maybe he's a little bit greater than us. Um, And and you know, so they're basically saying, well, you know, there's this other God that's a little bit more powerful than us. We can't do these things. So they're really covering themselves. But what they they say here, this is the finger of God. It it didn't lead them to a repentance. We don't read of the magicians repenting. And it didn't lead to Pharaoh's repentance either. It's interesting, the finger of God. The finger of God shows up a lot in scripture. This is fascinating. You'll recall, in fact, we'll get to it later on in Exodus. uh, Later on in Exodus, the finger of God engraved the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone there on Mount Sinai. We'll, We'll study that when we get there. That was one instance of the finger of God. In Daniel Chapter Five, you will recall the finger of God wrote on the wall of belshazzar 's p- palace when he was having a party and with all his friends and, and that 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 what what that finger what god 's hand wrote on that wall was a judgment against him and his kingdom in the New Testament. we even see the finger of God in the New Testament you recall the story in john chapter eight when when uh, the the, uh, Pharisees and the scribes, they bring this woman caught in adultery to Jesus. And they say, hey, the law says that we should put her to death, that she should be stoned to death. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus just stoops down with his finger, and he's just kind of doing something. He's writing on the ground and stuff, and and they keep persisting. And it says in John 8, it says, when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And you, you kind of wonder, what was he writing? Was he writing like each one of those accusers' names and maybe the sin that they were guilty of? Well, we find out that they start one by one, the oldest to the youngest start leaving because they, they, they know they're guilty. They're not innocent. And so they leave. That was another instance of the finger of God. Jesus said to the Pharisees in Luke eleven twenty, 20, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So not only do we see the finger of God in action in the Bible, but I like what David wrote in Psalms 8, verses 1 through 4. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? See, David saw the finger of God in creation. He looked all around him and said, man, this is God's handiwork." Here the magicians. They, ob- they see the obvious finger of God in these plagues, and yet it doesn't lead to a change in their lives. You know, God is actively at work in this world. How many of you prayed when you found out that Hurricane Florence was going to be like a category four storm, it's supposed to be the worst one? I mean, I, I, yeah, there's a few of us. And we were praying, praying for the people over there. Man, it sounded so bad. Well, it got downgraded. It got downgraded, right? I mean, it's still a bad storm, but it wasn't the Category Four that they had said it was going to happen. And I think we're going to hear stories eventually as they start trickling out. We're going to hear stories about these miraculous things that have occurred, that it can only attribute it to the finger of God. That it was the hand of God, a miraculous thing. You know, we just celebrated the uh, the uh, another anniversary of the the uh, terrorist attacks in New York City, right? And and of course, in Philadelphia and in Washington, 9-11. I have a few things here that was pretty interesting. It says, whereas about 22,000 employees worked in each tower, it is estimated that less than 10,000 were in each tower at the time of impact. Remarkably, both the number of employees who decided they could not go to work that day and the number of employees who were delayed or running late and getting to work were unusually high. It's like, of course, some people say, well, that's just coincidence. Well, no, it wasn't. I was watching a show, and, and, and uh, uh, they were interviewing these different survivors. And there was this lady, and she was talking about how she was in one of the elevators of the tower, and it was filled by, or not in the elevators, but a stairwell, and it was filled with smoke. And she was getting to the point where she didn't know what to do. And she said a man came up to her, held her by the hand, and led her down all the flights of stairs out of the thing. And when she turned around, he was gone. And she never saw him again. Finger of God, the hand of God. I got another one here. here. Sujo John was working on the 81st floor of World Trade Center 1 when the building was hit. Although he was able to quickly descend the stairs to safety, his mind remind, remained on his pregnant wife's on his pregnant wife who worked in the second tower. See, so he's the one in the tower. He's thinking about his wife in the other tower. I thought I would die, John told CBN News. The building was swaying, and we could feel the building tilting to the left, fighting our way through the fire, making our way to the stairwell. Miraculously, John's wife arrived at work just moments after it was hit by the second plane and was never allowed to enter the building. I saw it. I was standing right under the buildings. I felt the heat and the debris falling all around me, she commented. The collapse of the second tower, however, buried John under a pile of debris while his wife could only watch. Somehow he found the strength to burst through the rubble. He was the only one of his cohort to survive the blast. Both John and his wife credit God with their amazing survival. Since those frightening hours in 2001, the couple has been traveling the world sharing their incredible stories of survival. The effort has turned into a full-time ministry with more than 30,000 disciples for Christ. He recognized the finger of God. Here's another one. Pasquale... I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Buzelli, 43, a structural engineer for the Manhattan Port Authority, was one of the last people to exit the North Tower on September 11, 2001. Just as he reached the second, 22nd floor, however, the building crumbled beneath him. Amazingly, Buzelli was able to surf the debris down to the 7th floor, where he was rescued by firefighters. I was totally numb, Buzzelli told the Daily Mail. I felt nothing at all. I just opened my eyes and saw a blue sky. I really thought I was dead until I started to cough and I started to feel pain in my leg. At that point, I started calling out, help me! Firefighters Mike Lyons and Mike Morabito, who disobeyed orders to search the wreckage, found Pasquale just when he was in danger of being burned alive. Again, the finger of God. One last one. Nicole Simpson was a financial planner at Morgan Stanley on the 73rd floor in the second tower when 9-11 changed the course of her life. Simpson's split-second decision not to enter the elevator right before the second tower was hit saved her from the tragic end of her assistance. And all these things. My point is, God is actively at work in his creation in your and my lives. You know, I, I always pray, Lord, let me see your hand. Let me see you working in my life. Let me recognize those. Things. Let me acknowledge those things. So it's not just that we would see it, but more importantly, that we would acknowledge them and that it would have a, a, an impact on us. But You see, spiritual insensitivity or dullness, you might call it, to the hand of God in our lives It's a symptom of a hard heart. If God's doing all these things and you're just like, well, that was kind of coincidental and stuff, your heart is hard if you're a believer. When we do see but don't acknowledge the the hand of God, when his working in our lives produces no response from us, our hearts get just that much more harder each time. So these, these magicians, its the finger of God, but it didn't do any change to them. There's no repentance. There's no response. There's no impact in their lives. And neither in Pharaoh's. His heart grew harder. Verse 20, And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Then say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants, on your people, and into your houses." the houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand and in that day I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell that no swarms of flies shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land I will make a difference between my people and your people, tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms of flies came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the uh, land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Now, if you, my Bible, has got, it's got uh, swarms and then the flies are in italics because in the original Hebrew, it just says that God sent a swarm, which is the Hebrew word a upon Egypt. It doesn't specify what the swarms were. And so the translators of my particular Bible put in their flies. Um, that, and uh, Psalm 78, verse 45 says that these swarms devoured them. And so this indicates that whatever they were, they were biting insects. <clears throat> now, Kepri is an Egyptian deity, and it had the head of a scarab beetle. And uh, some people say, well, it was, uh, it was a beetle. It was swarms of these flying beetles. Uh, Septuagint calls it the dog fly, which is another biting fly. In fact, it says here, the blood-sucking dog fly also known as a gadfly, was a great abhorrence and may be responsible for blindness in the land. It might also be the ik- ikunimen fly, which deposits its larvae on living things so that it can feed. The Egyptians saw this as the manifestation of the god Uetchit. Many other insects may have been revered in the same way. So it could have been one of those types of flies. It's also known that the fly in Egyptian mythology gave uh, protection against disease or misfortune. So They found these stone amulets in the form of flies uh, dating back to as early as 3500 B.C. So even flies were worshipped back in those days. The fly was also depicted on various ritual artifacts, including the so-called magic wands, often carved from hop. Hip- Hippopotamus ivory and probably intended to protect the owner from harm. And I, and I came across this this uh, old commentary, and I thought it was so cool. You know, in the New Testament, we get the word we hear the word Beelzebub, which um, at one point they attributed the miracles of Jesus to Beelzebub, which is another name for for the devil, for Satan. But that word Beelzebub it means the Lord of the Flies. You know, when you just when you think about it, well, this is what this This uh, commentator um, wrote, says the prince of the power of the air has gloried in being Beelzebub, the god of flies. But here it is proved that even in that he is a pretender and a usurper. For even with swarms of flies, God fights against his kingdom and prevails. So it's like, you know, even he might be the Lord of the flies, but the flies are obeying the Lord of creation. They're obeying God, the God of heaven and earth. I thought that was interesting. So not only did the swarms devour the Egyptians, Psalm 78, but here in verse 24 it says the land was corrupted because of the swarms of flies. Maybe maggots or who knows what, just gross. But Jesus, or excuse me, the Lord says something interesting here, verse 22. He says, and in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I will make a difference between my people and your people. So from this point on in the plagues, it appears that no more of the plagues of Egypt are going to equally affect the Jewish people. So if you think about it, before that, the, the, the Nile turning to blood, it impacted the Jewish people as well. Evidently, the frogs impacted the Jewish people. Evidently, the lice impacted the Jewish people. But from this point on, it's, they're not going to be impacted. You know, for you and I as, as believers, right, we we've, we were non-believers. We took our put our trust in Jesus Christ. We're born again. We're a new creation. The Bible says, and yet we still suffer along with the world around us. I know Christians that get cancer and die. Christians are in car accidents. There's probably some Christians that are going to suffer devastating loss in that hurricane Florence. But there's other things that I will never experience. For example, like I said, I I may end up dying of cancer, even as a child of the Lord. Even as one of the king's kids, I may die of cancer. But you know what I won't die of? Opioid overdose. I won't die of that. I don't know if I pronounced that right, opioid? Whatever, you know what I'm talking about. I won't die of that, why? Because I don't participate in that sinful lifestyle. So, I'm not gonna be, I know I'm not going to be impacted by that, unless somebody injects me and then, you know, like some secret agents grab me and inject me with opioids. I, I watch too much TV shows, so, you know, and I, and I die that way. But seriously, there's certain things that aren't going to impact me because I don't live that way. And that should be true for all of us. But there are things that will. You know, some of us will die from cancer. Some of us, you know, we, we've been, or Christians have been exposed to war, to drought, to disease. <clears throat> but listen if i'm living a separate life from the way the world's living there should be a distinction in my life there should be things that i won't be afflicted with because i'm not living the way the world lives and how tragic it is when believers do suffer right along with you know that are, that are addicted to things and stuff and they suffer the same things how tragic that is when believers you know there's no distinction in their lives verse 25 then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said go sacrifice to your God in the land and Moses said it, will, it is not right to do so for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God if we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes then will they not stone us we will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he will command us. Why did Moses say that? It's, it'll be, they're going to stone us if we do that in the land of Egypt because one of their deities, the god Knum, had the head of a ram. Sheep and rams were considered sacred in ancient Egypt. And so basically Moses is saying, do you think the people that worship sheeps and rams are going to just let us kill sheeps and rams and sacrifice them in the land? No, they're going to stone us for that because we're killing their deities what they consider sacred. Well, What's taking place here? What's Moses or excuse me, what's Pharaoh trying to get Moses to do? In essence, Pharaoh is trying to get Moses to compromise on God's word. To compromise on, what, on obeying God's commandment. He says, you can worship God, just don't leave Egypt. Now, throughout the Bible, Egypt is a picture of the world. I had this article. Like, my neighbor brought him over a newspaper article the other day, and, and uh, I thought, well, he gave it to me. I might as well read it. And I read it, and I was like, oh, it's kind of interesting. Um, it's from the Thursday Post Bulletin. I don't get the Post Bulletin, but like I said, I was given this article, and I read it, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to share this. It's by a guy by the name of Ben Shapiro. It's an editorial. And he quotes a guy by the name of Frank Bruni of the New York Times in April 2015. This is what this guy, Frank Bruni, said. Our debate about religious freedom should include a conversation about freeing religions and religious people from prejudices that they need not cling to. We've got to free them up from those prejudices. Hillary Clinton, she he quotes her also in 2016. She said, "Deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs, and structural biases have to be changed." And this is what this Ben Shapiro, ben Shapiro says. He says the suggestion seems to be that religious texts are utterly malleable. In other words, you can change. The, the, you know, they're they're not set in stone and that human beings twist them to fit their preconceived notions. But the suggestion is alien to most religious people who believe that their religion dictates and they listen. Listen, what, the whole point of this guy's article is that the world is today telling you and telling me you can worship the God that you want to worship, but just do it within the confines of what society considers normal. Don't go beyond what we consider to be right and wrong. But that flies in the face of God and what he commands us to do, and many times it does. And we're going to be confronted with that more and more. And so Pharaoh says, worship your God, but don't leave Egypt. Do it within the context of Egypt. And I don't like to disparage other churches. I really don't. But it breaks my heart to know that there are denominations, Protestant denominations, that are doing just that. They've succumbed to the pressure, and they've changed their doctrine to be more culturally acceptable in today's culture, what, what today says is appropriate and inappropriate. Now I can think about in the in the Bible, in the Old Testament it says, well, "What are those who call good evil and evil good. And that's what's taking place in our society. You and I see that. And Moses was right. The people of Egypt would have considered their worship to be an abomination. And I got news for you. If you and I are fundamental in our Christian beliefs, in other words, we believe what God says in his word is what he said, there, it didn't mean something else, it's what he said, and if we stand on those beliefs, if we live our lives those, by those beliefs, you and I are more and more gonna be considered an abomination to the world around us. We're gonna be the problem. It's not terrorists, it's those fundamental Christians. It's happening. We're, we're seeing that the trend toward and it's only going to continue to grow worse. I hate to give you the bad news, but that's, it's true. What we do see here in Moses, though, is he's growing. He's, just, he's growing in boldness. He's growing in his walk with the Lord, and he's growing in faith also. He says, we're going to do exactly what the Lord has commanded us, no more and no less and no compromise. Verse 28. You kind of get the sense of Pharaoh's like, oh, boy, this guy's pretty stubborn, right? I'm not going to change. So Pharaoh said, verse 28, I'll let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. So I think, like I said, Pharaoh sees Moses' determination. He says, okay, fine, fine. Go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Just don't leave very far from Egypt. Just kind of stay close. And that's what the world... And the devil whispers in your and my ears. Go ahead, practice your Christianity, practice your faith. Just don't get too radical. Don't go too far off in left field. You know, don't do that. That's what the that's what the world whispers in our ear. That's what Satan whispers in our ear. And as hard as it may be, and as much pushback as you and I are going to receive. We should not allow ourselves to compromise in our faith, right? We shouldn't allow ourselves to be spiritually compromised. And there's that pressure for you and I to do that. What's fascinating to me is that Pharaoh says there in the end of verse twenty eight, intercede for me. And I was I was kind of thinking about that and I thought, you know, I kinda I think I kinda maybe see where he's coming from because it's interesting, you know, with social media, <clears throat> I've got a lot of friends on Facebooks, and some I know really well, some I don't know very well at all. Somehow I just became friends with them or whatever, but uh, um, and uh, uh, there's a significant m- number of them that are not believers. And it's interesting, when you see, like, like somebody passes away or there's this tragic accident or something happened, There'll be all these flood of comments on on social media, and a lot of it's like sending prayers your way, you know, and I'll pray, be praying. And I'm, and I know some of them. I know the people. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> they've never stepped foot in a church, except for maybe when they were baptized as infants, or maybe when they were married, or something. They don't, they don't belong to a church. They, they certainly don't have a walk with the Lord, you know. I, 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 it's like. And they're saying they're going to pray for people. You know, I go, man, how shallow. It's almost like today it's just, it's just something you say to make someone feel better. Oh, I'll, I'll be praying for you. Are you really going to pray for you? In fact, for me, that's always been a compromise, not a compromise, a challenge for me is when I tell someone, hey, I'm going to pray for you. It's like, <laughs> I need to pray for you. You either need to do it right then and there or I or need to make sure I don't put it off for tomorrow because if I put it off for tomorrow, I'll likely forget it. And so I don't. I want to do that. I don't want. I don't want to just say glibly, "Hey, I'll pray for you." No, I, I seriously want to be praying. I, I hope that you do the same in your lives. And so I think Pharaoh. I, I just. I just think it's an insincere thing on, on Pharaoh's part, because his heart is. His heart is continuing to get harder and harder. Verse twenty nine. Then Moses said, "Indeed, I am going out from you." And I will entreat the Lord that swarms of flies may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitly any more in letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. Whew, relief. The flies are gone. Look at verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also. Neither would he let the people go. It's possible that his heart was maybe, maybe he was getting some conviction and maybe he's saying, you know, intercede for me. Maybe, maybe he was sincere. <clears throat> maybe his heart started to, to soften. It was starting to glow with a little bit of conviction. But then as soon as that relief came, psh- Cooled right off again, and it became that much more hard and that much more brittle. His heart. And I just want to close with this because, <coughs> in talking about Moses and stuff, I, I really think there's an application for you and me in, in our hearts. There's things that we need to guard against, even as believers. Believers can get hard hearts. We can get we can grow calloused in our hearts, and so what do we do there's three things that we need to guard against or guard our hearts against the first thing spiritual procrastination if the Lord's laying a conviction on your heart if 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 he's if you're doing your daily devotions and I pray all of us are and the Lord's speaking to you out of that and you go oh yeah okay hmm, but you don't respond you don't you don't do what the word says your heart's going to grow that much harder don't put off when the Lord is speaking to you don't spiritual procrastinate, spiritually procrastinate, spiritual dullness, insensitivity. You're not looking for the Lord in our daily lives. And I, and I don't mean, you know, I, I mean, some people can get really kind of, I don't know, they, you know, well, I won't go there, but. but we need to be looking. We need to be, we need to be Cognizant that God is active in our lives, and when we when we recognize it, when we see it, it should cause an impact. It should cause us to respond in some way. Maybe it's just maybe it's just stopping and thanking Him, Lord. Thank you for blessing me in that. Or or maybe maybe Lord, you, wow, that was a close call. Lord, you're warning me, aren't you? And, and responding in that way. Don't let your heart grow dull to the hand of God in your life. And then finally, and I think this is one is is an insidious one for all of us, is spiritual compromise. And we're facing it, we face it in our culture, you know. We're we're Western Christians. We, we've kind of, a, you know, acclimated to our culture. We're a little bit different, not, I mean, we have the core faith in Jesus alone that other Christians have in other parts of the world, but, but we're American Christians. There is a little of acclimation. There is a little bit of, of how we live our lives because of we're Americans. It, it happens. But we need to guard our hearts against that compromise to the point where we're compromising what God's commanded in his word. So I think there's a lot of good application for us. Why don't you stand up and let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, come before you this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, um, just the lessons that we can glean from this passage of Scripture that we could apply to our own lives. Lord, I pray for each one of us here this morning. Lord, maybe we have procrastinated on, on obeying you and something that you've laid on our hearts and we put it off. Lord, today as you have pointed that out to us once more, maybe our hearts are growing a little bit, a little bit warmer again this morning. Maybe that we're starting to glow with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would not let this moment pass without responding to you. Maybe it's a repentance. Maybe it's it's just getting doing some business with you in prayer and coming before you. or Or actually making the change that we know that we're supposed to do. Just making that change right here and there. Here and now, I should say. Lord, for those of us, maybe, Lord, we're just, we just plow through our day. We don't really think about you much during the day. We don't think about what we, what we would call sometimes coincidences in our lives, Lord. We're, we're, we're not seeing your hand, and yet, Lord, we know that you are active in all of our lives. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would recognize your hand working in our lives and in the lives around us, Lord, and that we would respond as we see that. And then finally, Lord, for compromise. Lord, I pray that we would not succumb to the, to the voice of the enemy that would tell us to, to tone down our, our fervent belief in you or to, to compromise on, on what we know that you've commanded us to do. Lord, may we not compromise spiritually. Give us the courage and the boldness to keep our eyes fixed on you, standing on your word alone, Lord God. And so just uh, thank you for the lessons that we have in Exodus chapter 8 this morning. Lord, I pray for each one of us this morning. And I thank you for these believers here. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stay standing while we do this last song? And, you know, really this is an opportunity. If, if, you know, if you need to just I encourage you, just be in prayer as we're, you know, it's not just a closing song. But this is a song just to respond. If the Lord's laying something on your heart, respond. respond to him. Because that's, that's why you're here this morning.